introductory material. Um, and so I'm not going to repeat the introductions because we did it yesterday. Okay. So, before we start, um, just to make this fun and exciting, um, following the uh, idea that if you have something to look forward to and anticipate, it's more interesting. We're going to take um, guesses for how long it's going to take us to finish the chapter. And whoever wins gets a prize. So everyone, you don't have to say it out loud, but write, write down on your paper when you think we're going to finish the chapter. And when we finish, we'll see who's the closest, and then we'll finish. Write an actual date. How long did the last chapter take? Last chapter actually was, was ended um, unusually quickly. It's the 18th, right? We're, we're Same in class. Yes. How many classes? How many classes? Yes. Do we have a date? Do whatever you want. But write it down, and we'll see. That way it'll be fun. I have I have spent three months on one chapter. That has happened. I'm never going on it. I'm like, well, it also has something to do with how I teach it. Okay. What's the last day of February this year? I think so. It's not a leap year. Yeah. Okay. To explain more adequately. And more precisely, the word very in the verse for this thing is very near to you. Okay, so the entire Tanya centered around this verse, this thing is very near to you, this thing being Judaism, and near to you, as the verse goes on to say, is in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And as we discussed yesterday, the idea that um, having an emo- the proper emotional relationship with God and with Judaism being something that is near, accessible within a person's ability, it is not obvious that that is the case. When we talk about behavior, we all, assuming that we're functional adults, can get ourselves to do the things that we know we ought to do, regardless of our motivations. We can get ourselves not to do the things we know we're not supposed to do. Um, but that doesn't always mean that we are motivated for the right reason and we feel the proper way about it. Um, Parents can get their children to eat their vegetables, more or less, but they can't necessarily get the children to like them, right? And when you become an adult, you can get yourself to eat your vegetables. That doesn't necessarily mean you get yourself to like it, right? So that's the question. How do we make it accessible on that emotional level? And the previous idea that we said was that because a Jew has a godly soul, which has a unique capacity to comprehend the greatness of God in a way that is emotionally moving and relevant, that enables the person, if they contemplate the greatness of God properly, to generate some degree of emotional connection to Hashem, to the mitzvahs, and um, they can take control over that contemplation. That's what we did. That's what we spoke about. What's the problem? The problem is that the verse uses the word very. The verse is not written in English, by the way. It's written in Hebrew. God likes Hebrew. Do you know why God likes Hebrew? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's reversed. The causality is God likes Hebrew, so he used it to create. I, mean, he, I don't know. Like, he didn't tell me. <laughs> I, think it's an, I think it's a legitimate question to consider. Like, what does God like about Hebrew? And, you know, if you come up with a good answer, let me know. I don't know. Just know that he does. Okay. In Hebrew, there's a word, me'oid. Um, 
Ma'id is translated as very. It's still only used in modern Hebrew as well. Um, when you, so we're going to go with the English right now, very, and then we'll go back to the Hebrew ma'od, because words don't necessarily always translate perfectly, but sometimes they're adequate enough. What do you gain when you use the word very um, in English? Emphasis. I love you. I love you very. In English, that's weird, right? You don't say I love you very, right? You'd have to add another word there, right? What word do you say? Much. Much. I, I hate you. I hate you very much, right? So are we, we're emphasizing the love or the hate there, right? Okay. Um, are there other ways we could, other words we could do to accomplish the same thing of emphasis? I have a three-year-old. He's very cute. Um, my kids basically speak Hebrew with English um, mixed in. Um, they think they speak English. They don't really speak English. But he's three, and he has this very cute sentence that he says before he goes. He says, I love you very much. He says it as a full sentence. It's very cute. Um, so, but is there other words we could use in English to get the same idea across without, what? So. So, I love you so. So much. So much. I love you so much. I love you a lot. What about I really love you? Is there any difference between I love you so much, I love you a lot, I love you very much, I really love you? Are those, is, is there differences in shades of meaning there at all? I think it's the word really. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, how's really different? I think it really validates. You're trying to convince. That. Convince. Yeah. It also sounds like a lot more sincere. Like it's some like a like a deeper place of like it's not like I love you very much, but like I really I don't know. Try, like I think truly sounds more sincere. Truly, I I think it depends also on the tone of voice because you can make anything <laughs> sound you know sleazy if you say it with the wrong tone of voice. Um, I really hate you, right? I really hate you, right? Um. <laughs> Why should I add a word like a lot or very much or, or, you know, really or truly? What am I, what am I trying to accomplish with this, this emphasizing, this being more emphatic? What am I, why, like, um, have you ever done any writing and you're, you know, you're a teacher, like, or your editor, if you did it more professionally, it starts connecting. You don't need this very and a lot and, you know, so much. Like, it's just, it's, it's unnecessary. Like, take it out, right? And yet when we speak, we put these in, right? So... Like, why? I think it's trying to like show like a higher level of sincerity. So like why take it out of the down. why take it out of the writing? Because it doesn't actually add to the word. Because the really and the very and all that is emotional. Mm-hmm. Emotion with the writing, you're kind of like trying to simplify. Do you agree with that? That, that when you're writing. You, you want to p- kind of put more work into the reader to like bring it out and so you don't want to cloud it too much but when you're speaking sometimes words just conveying an emotional feel for the words for the content that sounds reasonable okay Ma'od when it's used in um, the Chomish when it's used in, in, in the Hebrew scripture is understood conceptually 
In other words, you can't edit out the word. If you edit out the word, you change the meaning of the sentence. Should I prove it to you? There's a verse in the Shema, and I'll say it in Hebrew, then I'll translate it, okay? You shall love Hashem your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your ma'od. That's a whole clause. With all of your very, with all of your very much. Now, whatever you mean by that, like it's, a, it's, 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 like a, it's in a whole separate clause, right? It has some content. Now, our, our sages, um, they like to make things very tangible. So they say, what does it mean to love Hashem with all your heart? It means that you should make sure that even your evil inclination loves Hashem. Because your heart is split between a tendency towards good and a tendency towards evil. So, not just the part of you that's naturally drawn towards godliness, but even the part of you that's naturally drawn towards the opposite should also learn to love God. Okay, that's an idea. What do you then add by saying with all of your soul? You should be willing to die for God. You love God so much that you're willing to die. That's what it takes. So what's after that? I love God so much that I'm willing to die for God. I'm willing to live for God. What? I'm willing to? Live for God. So they don't say it that way, but that is basically what they mean. They give two interpretations. One interpretation is that your love for God is unchanging regardless of how poorly God treats you. It's one thing to die for God, an act of martyrdom out of deep love for your creator. It's an entire another thing to feel like God is treating you poorly and it even feels undeserved and not to let that diminish your love. That's a very different type of love. Um, And the other is to, to spend your money on God. Um, because um, there's something profound and dramatic about giving up your life. It's something that's a lot, that's in a certain sense much more um, difficult to kind of live daily and spend money on something um, where it's time and it's resources, right? So, with all of your very, has a very specific meaning. And, and, and the way the sages understand that, it means to take your love of God beyond all limits. What are the limits? Even like even martyrdom is a limited thing, right? It's a, it's a dramatic ex- act of love, and that's all it is, right? But to live regardless of whether we're talking about the kind of passive element of accepting what happens or the active element of spending your money with a constant love that permeates everything, right? That's a totally different type of thing. Okay. And from this, we can understand that when we see the word ma'od, what we mean to say is that we, we want this thing to go beyond what are its intuitive limits. Okay? So I were to go back and say in English, I love you very much or I hate you very much. I'm probably, you know, it's, it's, it's emotional, it's emphasis, it's something like that. But um, there is a different thing. A person can say, I love you more than is reasonably expected. Or I love you more than is normal, right? If you change it to that, you're actually saying something above and beyond just emphasizing the fact that you love. You're saying like, I love you, or I hate you, or whatever the case might be, using love because that's you know, nicer. Um, but in addition to that, there's a kind of a boundary, a kind of a limit, a kind of a, a scope that love should 
be limited to, and I'm saying in this case, it goes outside of that, goes beyond that. And that notion that something goes beyond what should be its normative scope, that's what we mean when we say ma'od in Hebrew, at least in the biblical Hebrew. That's how it's understood. So now, we have a problem. Because there are three types of people that contemplation does not work for. Number one, people don't know how to do it. That's not a problem because if you don't know how to do something, you can always learn. learn. People who, as we learned previously, are punished for <laughs> stepping, people who are punished for stepping outside the relationship in a, in a kind of um, consistent manner. When Hashem says, if you're not interested in having a real relationship with me, then I'm not gonna let you have a relationship back the other way. It's not something that you get the convenience. We discussed in the last chapter. And the altar is very clear that the Torah doesn't address people who step outside the relationship. So we're not talking about such people. What is Someone who doesn't know how to contemplate. But if you don't know how to do something, you could always learn, right? So that's not really an issue. I don't know how to play piano, but you know, if it was important, I could you know, learn. There's YouTube, there's teachers, figure it out, right? There is a kind of person who cannot contemplate in the kind of way that we've described. And it is not because that they're outside the fold of people the Torah is addressing in general. And it's not because they haven't learned how or they're not in practice. It's because there's an actual genuine limitation that makes them unable to contemplate. Okay, we're gonna talk about that. And if you have people who are outside what we describe, you say that the way to develop this love for Hashem is through contemplation. And contemplation only applies to a particular kind of person. Even if that kind of person is a broad category, you can't really use the word ma'od in describing that as an approach because ma'od means that something has to go beyond any kind of limited scope. So if I say, this technique works for most people most of the time, then it can't be described as ma'od. For it to be ma'od, it would have to apply for everyone, everyone all the time. Now, everyone all the time doesn't mean, doesn't mean it's a quick fix, and it doesn't mean that it works instantaneously, but the idea is that regardless of who you are, it will work. Okay? And so that's, what, that, that's the difficulty in the verse that the Alter Rebbe is going to start addressing in chapter 18 and conclude in chapter 25. How do we have an approach to developing the right feelings and attitudes and motivations towards Hashem and mitzvahs that is something that will work for all people, not only for most people most of the time. Okay. And again, somebody who made a choice to live outside the relationship with Hashem, right? as we discussed in chapter 17, that's a whole different topic altogether. It should be recognized with certainty that even the person whose understanding of the knowledge of God is limited and who has no heart to comprehend the greatness of the Ein Sof, which is a synonym for God, blessed is he, to produce therefrom awe and love of God, even his mind understanding alone. However, it is very near thing for him to observe and practice all the commands of the Torah and the study of Torah, which counterbalances them all in his mouth and his heart from the depths of his heart in true sincerity with love and fear. So we're going to go back and go into a lot of details, but that sentence is saying in a nutshell that even if you can't contemplate, you can still have the right emotions, the right feelings. So it needs to be a totally different approach. Okay, and that's, again, based on the fact that the word, the Torah uses this word ma'od, right? 
not Ma'od just is not referring <clears throat> to the contemplation. No, Ma'od is the referring to the closeness, the accessibility. This is accessible, but and what kind of accessibility which goes beyond any limitations that you might think. So regardless of a person's ability to engage with God, every Jew has the ability to make to develop the right types of feelings towards Hashem in the way that we're going to outline. Okay? So this is not adding emphasis right, or trying to be more convincing or putting an emotional flavor to it. This is actually changing the concept of what the verse is saying. Okay? Now, um, so let's look and see what are, what are, where are the limitations he says the first that the person is un, whose understanding and the knowledge of God is limited that's one limitation and it was no hard to comprehend the greatness of the Ein Sof that's limitation number two right? so there's a limitation uh, we'll call it an intellectual limitation and an emotional limitation so let's try and understand what these limitations are Okay, so first off, when we say that a person um, who's understanding the knowledge of God is limited, if that is merely a problem that you don't know enough, then what would the solution to that be? To learn. Okay. So, and if that's, then, then you just learn and then you can do the contemplation of what you've learned and then you can use the original method that was described in the previous chapters. So you don't need a new approach. So then when he says that this person is, um, their understanding the knowledge of God is limited, what do we mean by that? It's not a lack of information. It's not something that can be remedied by just learning more. What is that? <coughs> we want to think of something that, not necessarily can never change, people can change in very drastic ways, but it's not something you can just say, okay, well, oh, you're missing this, do X, Y, and Z, and then you solve the problem. It has to be something that the person cannot circumvent. Some minds have less of, a, of an ability to comprehend certain things. Why are they lacking an ability to comprehend certain things? Like, what does that mean? They're, they're, they're lacking. I think, like, <clears throat> like, some people are smarter than other people. Mm, so it's an intelligence issue. Yeah. Contemplation does only work for smart people. Maybe it's like awareness, like mindfulness. Um, let's do one thing at a time. It's not intelligence, okay? Um, let's talk a little bit about why it's not intelligence. Let's first ask ourselves, what... Well, intelligence is something that varies from people to people, from person to person, right? Not everybody has the same, intel- the same degree of intelligence. Okay, so what exactly is that thing that varies? We say, you know, this person is more intelligent than that person. What do we mean? They're more what? We don't mean they can run faster. Like, like make that tangible, make that concrete. Intelligence is like a fancy word that's covering over for something. What, what are we describing? What are we referring to when we talk about someone's intelligence and they have more or less of it? And don't say smart. Skill. At what? Like math. Okay. So someone who is more intelligent does more math and someone who is less intelligent does less math. Maybe they understand it more naturally. Like they're more skilled, knowledgeable. It's the same thing, knowledgeable and intelligent. What do you mean, the ability to understand something? Like, I like, like what? Pretend we're all going to school for, for cognitive psychology, and you now have to like write a paper about what intelligence is. Like, what is intelligence? What are you talking about? 
What do you mean to understand something? What happened? What changed? What? The ability to analyze. Give me a concrete example. A concrete example of a use of intelligence. Well, there's different kinds of intelligence. Okay, that's already something, right? We can break it apart. So we'll start with one kind. Will be one example. Emotional intelligence. But I want concrete. I want something like a very specific example. This is an example of a person using intelligence. They do, like for instance, I, an example of walking is, I, is, is if I take my legs and I put one in front of the other and I get myself from my body from one place to another place, right? Or if an example of playing piano is I move my fingers, right? And I make sounds that actually sound melodical, right? Like what am I doing when I'm actually using intelligence? Whether we're talking mm-hmm. emotional intelligence, mathematical intelligence, I don't, what am I doing? Use it to like construct. Yeah, but then the intelligence isn't very close to everyone. What? Intelligence isn't very close to everyone. I, I know. We're going to get to that in a second. I just want like, what you're saying this. Not everyone has, an, the, the question is, what, what do we mean here when we say that not everyone has this understanding? And I said, it can't be information. That doesn't make any sense. So a suggestion was intelligence. So I'm going to make sure we understand what do we mean when we're talking about intelligence. I'll, gi- I'll give you an example, right? Let's use emotional intelligence, yeah? So let's say I want something. And let's say you want something different. Now if I do pursue what I want and you pursue what you want, we're gonna have a conflict, right? If I have emotional intelligence, what, do I, what am I able to do? Convince the other person. That, that, okay, so I could convince you to want what's in line with me, right? Okay. Or what else could I do if I have emotional intelligence? I could convince myself also to want what you want, right? I could realize like, that maybe is the more effective thing. I could also figure out a way that even though the way, what we want on one level is in conflict, the deeper wants driving those wants are not really in conflict, right? So I am, I am figuring out a way to take these two things which are in conflict and actually bring them into harmony, right? But I'm doing it on the plane of you know, human emotion, social interaction, right? And not necessarily with a lot of you know, conscious awareness of what I'm doing. Maybe yes, maybe no, right? Now let's talk about math. What are you doing in math? So, um, you know those little kids that they sometimes ask annoying questions? It's like, what's one plus one? Two. What's one plus two? Three. And then they keep asking, why is that annoying? Because once, once you know something, it's like, this is like the basic. Like this. Right. If you have mathematical intelligence, what you realize is 1 plus 1 equaling 2. And 17 minus 5 equaling 12 is really the same thing. In fact, if you really have good mathematical intelligence, what you realize is that geometry and algebra are in some sense really the same thing. Now, not everybody can get that, but what are you getting? So you're seeing that there's things which appear to be totally disconnected are in fact have an underlying connection, connection and unity. What are you doing when you are using intelligence? When you problem solve, you have something is broken and you figure out a, a, like one of those spinning things where you chop the vegetables up and it broke and like, I'm throwing it out because it's like 60, 70 shekels. And one of my sons, he was like seven. He's like, don't throw it out. And I said, fine. And like five minutes later, it's fixed. 
He's a kind of mechanical. He looks, he, he looked at it and he's like, oh, I see how that fits together. And then it fits back together again. Okay. What are you doing when you are using intelligence? You're using this ability to find unity amongst disparate things or conversely, disparate manifestations of what's essentially one unified thing. That plays out in many different areas. That's more or less what we're doing when we're doing intelligence. It's an interesting ability. Really, really intelligent people, they see things that they see connections between things that other people don't see. And they see how something has applications that other people don't see. Okay. Now, that ability, if we talk about it as just an ability, it's an interesting question whether it's one ability or there's different kinds of intelligence, like really genuinely different kinds of intelligence or there's different applications of intelligence. That's an interesting question. What I want to think about is like this. If a person has that ability, um, does that necessarily mean that they are good at using that ability? No. Why not? Okay, so there's, there's, there's choice, right? There, there's, there's, there's choice. I want to touch on a slightly different element than just choice. Let's use a different ability. Let's use the idea of running. Running is, running. We can run, right? We have the ability to run. Okay, how fast can you run? What? 16 miles an hour. Okay, fine. I don't know. I don't know. 16? That's pretty fast. No, no, no. If you can do a mile in 10 minutes, <laughs> then you're doing six miles an hour. Yeah, if you're sprinting. But even yeah. five minute miles. Not for an hour straight. Not for an hour. Yeah. Well, yeah, but just a, okay, here's an, inter- here's an interesting question, though. Here's an, here's an interesting question. Here's an interesting question, okay? Would it matter the context? In other words, if you were running for the sake of running, would it change if you did that versus you were running because someone was trying to kill you? Maybe you'd <laughs> Right? There would be a difference there? Right? So we see something about this ability to run that it kind of has two operating levels. There's kind of like your generic ability to run, and then there's where you're, you have a need to run that you are deeply connected to. Right? And then the running ability operates on a whole different level, right? Yeah. One could make the argument, I'm not saying that necessarily this is true, but one could make the argument that professional athletes are people who somehow have managed to have that running for your life relationship with running just in relationship to running without having any kind of external thing to it. Does that make sense? In other words, like, I could run, you can run, we can all run however fast we can run, right? Um, And if we're just running because we see value in running, then there's going to kind of be a limit to how far we can go. But if we're running for our life, we probably can run a lot faster or with more endurance depending on what the situation is, right? And, you know, a person could have a totally different relationship with 
running such that they're running even in the context of competitive running is with the same level. Like they could not run faster if they had to save their life. In fact, we know this because there is an upper limit to how fast somebody can run because when you run, you put force down and when you put force down on something, it um, puts stress on it and if you put too much stress, what happens? It can break. That's right. And the world record sprinters now are putting this amount of pressure which is basically just under the threshold of human bone breaking. So if they were to run any faster, they would shatter their bones. You can get a fraction of a second here or there, but that's basically where the running is now. So you can't really run faster than that. You know, I mean, again, fractions of seconds, that's what we're dealing with. We're not, you know, no, no, no one's going to shave it down by 30 seconds. That's not happening. At least in the, at least in the, 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 the male sprinting. I, I, so, like, you can't do it faster than that. But most people can't get that kind of relationship with running, right? And some people do. And if you have that coupled with, like, your actual objective abilities very high, then you get to be these world-class runners. Make sense? Let's go back to intelligence. Have you ever noticed that your intelligence also operates on two levels? There's when you are personally deeply invested in something being relevant to you, operates on one level, and when you're using your intelligence because, like, you have to use your intelligence because, like, that's, I don't know, schoolwork, whatever it is. Like, those are two totally different levels of using your intelligence. Okay. And your teacher, you, like, use your intelligence and whatever. We'll use that, you know. And you, I don't know, you do some math, you write an essay, or you do research, whatever it is. You use your intelligence. And your teacher's like, okay, it's adequate, you know. You really, like... You should work harder, you should, do, you should do better, you should use more intelligence more. And you feel like, what do you mean? I, like, I did the best that I could. And your teacher is very disappointed in you. Now let's say for argument's sake, you really did the best that you could. Why is your teacher disappointed in you? And let's assume that the teacher is not just, you know, completely, um, you know, living in their own fantasy world. Like, what, what, is, what is it that the teacher is feeling is missing and there's a loss and it's, it's, it's almost a tragedy If the subject was as important to you as it was to the teacher, would your intelligence operate on a different level? And would you have produced much better work? So what is the teacher lamenting? Yeah, that it doesn't matter that much to you. And therefore, there, you, you've reached the limit of what your intelligence can do because it only matters this much to you. And you're saying, but like, that's all that matters to me. Like, you can't make it matter more to me. Okay. You see, in other words, and this is true with all of our abilities, with all of our abilities, they do have like this kind of upper limit of how much they work, but then that is then gets mediated by this other thing, which is how important it is for us to be using that ability. Okay. The, there's an interesting observation made by Hasidic, uh, I don't remember which Hasidic Rebbe it is. I think it's the fourth Chabad Rebbe, but don't quote me on this that the Talmud has these very complicated legal arguments. Um, and the, 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 the legal arguments in the Talmud um, um, often are dealing with monetary disputes. Okay, so you have two people and they're disputing ownership of some property or who has to pay who money. Um, or it could be like a divorce issue of like who's, you know, in terms of being entitled to, to um, you know, money after a divorce or something like that. Yeah, you have two people in claim. And we have a basic rule in, in, in Jewish law that we don't, we don't um, make arguments on behalf of people. 
The, the classic Jewish, Jewish court, the Basin, is that you have a panel of judges, you have the parties, the parties make their arguments, and the judges adjudicate the claims as the arguments are presented. You don't argue, the, 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 the judges don't make arguments on behalf of the different parties. Um, and traditionally, we're no lawyers. It's a little bit different now, I don't want to get into that. So there's a, there's a question that's made. You have these very sophisticated arguments, and you know, these arguments are being made by segments of the society which are not necessarily very scholarly. So the question is, you know, if, if you think about this as a, as a real life thing, how, is it, how does it make sense that someone in real life who's never studied any of Talmudic law in any kind of serious way is going to come up with these very ingenious arguments in a real life case such that the judges should consider how to weigh those arguments? It seems a little bit funny. And so again, I think it's the fourth Chabad Rebbe says that the answer is because, you know, it, even a person who is not very scholarly or sophisticated when it's their money becomes extremely intelligent. They don't need to know it from the Talmud. If, if it's not my money, I need to know it from studying the Talmud. If it's my money, I'll probably come up with 90% of what the Talmud comes up with on my own, especially if it's a lot of money. Okay? So the, the one's intellectual acumen in something is, yes, it varies from person to person, and then there's a question of whether it's one variable known as a single intelligence that then manifests in different ways, or it's different actual intelligence abilities. Setting all of that aside... It doesn't really matter what your intelligence is because it can only operate in conjunction with how important it is to you. And something being important means you has to resonate, it has to speak to you. And so there's this kind of vicious cycle. To really flesh out through contemplation something, I have to use my intelligence on a level that I'm really engaged with it. In order to use my intelligence on a level that I'm really engaged with it, I have to care about it. To care about it has to resonate with me. If it doesn't resonate with me that deeply to begin with, my intelligence is going to kind of fizzle out very quickly. Not because I'm stupid, but because, like, you're the smart kid who doesn't think math is interesting. So, like, you do your work, you get a decent grade, and you move on in life. And, like, you know, until your whole relationship with math changes, there's nothing you can do about that. And then the, 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 the kind of tragedy of the whole thing is, like, if the purpose is to change your relationship, like... Where do you start? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contemplate something to change my relationship with a thing. But in order to contemplate it, I already have to have an engaged relationship with a thing. The whole thing doesn't get off the ground. So someone who is already kind of has a deep sense of connection to the greatness of God, but wants to make that something that is much more integrated, much more tangible, much more emotionally impactful, can... Can, can engage in the contemplation. But someone who's kind of, you know, whatever, it is what it is. It's, it's the way it is. And it's just, I understand that it makes sense. You know, I'll get a B plus on my essay on the theology of Judaism and like, fine, I believe it. Like that person, when they start contemplating, they're just going to feel like they're just regurgitating information that they know over and over and over again. It gets very boring. And they're like, what's the point? And that's not moving me. And like, you say, well, well, really get into it. Like flesh it out. And like, what do I mean? Like, I understand that. Like, if I had a question, I could get an answer. If I was confused, I could get clarity. But I understand that I'm not dumb. And so it's a level of the use of intelligence that's the issue. And if you find yourself in that place, contemplating doesn't get you out of that. You have to already have a certain level of buy-in to the whole thing that you can be contemplating. Does that make sense? Okay. And it's interesting because the actual Hebrew word 
um, when it says, it says, um, the altar previously discussed how this idea of das is the, the, way, the way we connect to what we are um, aware of, the degree of attachment that we have. If you are more attached to something, your intelligence operates in an entirely different way. Okay. The simplest way to see this, um, you, anybody's ever been in a class and someone wants to know something going to be on the test? Okay. Mm -hmm. You know that every single teacher, assuming that they're they're teaching a subject because they care about the subject. They, 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 they die a little bit inside every time somebody says this is on the test. Because that means another person who just doesn't care about the subject. That's what it means. But this still does include a level of intelligence because if people, two people with different levels of intelligence do have the connection to the matter, the person with the higher level will be able to get more out of it. Oh, so then we have to do another thing. Is that, here's the question. Contemplation is effective because of the level of understanding you achieve or because of the kind of mental engagement you're involved in? Which is the thing, in other words, we're talking about contemplation to, to, to change a person's relationship with something. So is the more effective contemplator the one that has greater um, understanding and knowledge more nuanced and sophisticated explanations, or the one whose, whose mental act of contemplation was a much more engaging one? Which one, is the, which one is gonna actually produce the effect of changing the person's relationship? It's the second one, which means like this. Two people, one is objectively more intelligent than the other. Let's even make it not, not objectively more intelligent. Ridiculously more intelligent than the other. But the second person has a sense that this really matters. This is significant, this notion of the greatness of God. And when they start thinking about the greatness of the mind, their mind turns on and their mind is racing. And like to them, it's like the whole, like they're, they're, they're in it. Even though the other person's like, that, that's like, you know, that's like a footnote over here. It's not a big deal. Like, that's just one little technical thing. But the other person, with all of their knowledge and all of their sophistication and all of their articulateness, is dull and passive in the way they're making sense of it. And therefore, it has zero effect on their relationship. And so it's very important to understand here is it is a feature of intelligence, but it is not how smart you are that he's talking about. Somebody who's, you know, in other words, you have these two modes of your intelligence. There's like this kind of, I'm using my intelligence because I have to use my intelligence and I figured it out and that's enough. And then I can kind of file it away, use of intelligence. And then there's the use of my intelligence because this thing really matters to me. The second use of intelligence is the thing that makes contemplation effective for changing how we relate to God. And, it, and the degree of sophistication and information and understanding is actually completely irrelevant to that. It just needs to be sophisticated enough that you're engaged with it, that's engaging to you. And the kind of tragedy built into that is that you kind of have to use the fact that this resonates with you to contemplate it so it resonates more deeply with you. But if you're kind of cold and impassive about the whole thing, it doesn't really matter how smart you are. It matters how your, how your intelligence plays a role in the contemplation that has to do with your connection. Um, 
and, and you can see this all the time, right? There's a way that people are, are disconnected from what they understand. And there's a way in which people are deeply connected to what they understand. And when a person is deeply connected to what they understand, even a very short, brief contemplation can be profoundly impactful. And when a person is disconnected, you can spend hours and hours of thinking about it, and all you did was come up with a PhD thesis, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you've changed your way you feel about the significance of this thing in your life. And so that's that first limitation. The first limitation is that it's kind of like being a capitalist. If you want to you know, invest in some kind of business, what do you need to have to begin with? Well, you need to have money. Yeah, the trick with capitalism is that how do you make, how do you make, how do you really make money? By having money. money. People who are going to work, I have a friend, he says, you know what the problem is? He says, you go to work and you get a paycheck. Like if you, if you had some money, then you can use the money to make some money and you'd have a whole different relationship with everything. So that's very nice, but I don't have the money to do that. Um, But it's a whole different thing. If you have money that you don't need for your bills, then it's a whole different thing. You need to have some capital, some, some degree of real investments that your mind and intelligence turn on in this way when you contemplate for the contemplation to then bring the returns. Right? Return on investment. And of course, if you make money by investing money, then you have more money to reinvest. And it becomes a, depending on your view of capitalism, either a vicious or virtuous cycle. Um, but in the context of contemplating God, that's how it works. But if you find yourself short of capital, you don't have that initial sense of this resonates, this matters, that when I start thinking about it, my mind really turns on. It doesn't really matter how objectively smart you are. And like, what are you supposed to do if that's your problem? Right? Contemplation doesn't solve that. Now, is this, is the, the Alter Rebbe is, is presuming that this is a problem that it, most people do not suffer from. Okay. Now, I think many people probably feel that they do suffer from it, um, but the reason why I'm saying most people don't suffer from it is because he gives the first answer, the first explanation being that he's using contemplation as if like, that usually works, that that's like kind of the normal approach. Um, the thing that I would, I would say is that many times we feel that we can't do something because we haven't actually tried or because we have gone about it the wrong way. Um, most people feel that they can't play a musical instrument even if they tried to play a musical instrument the first time because the first time you try to play a musical instrument, what happens? It sounds horrible, right? And after one minute of practice, it's not like, it's not like all of a sudden it's smooth or, it's, or it sounds amazingly better, right? And if you were to give up then or you were to develop some bad habits about how you go about practicing, you could easily convince yourself that you're just not able to play a musical instrument. But is that necessarily true? Probably not. I venture to say most people, if they had the right guidance and they practiced properly, you know, they would eventually get to a place where they could passively play at least more of the, some of the simpler instruments. And that's probably true with contemplation as well. That most people, most of the time, if it was something that they were willing to learn how to do and take the baby steps, they would get to the place where they would see that really, you know, they do have that level of care and investment. They just need to know how to tap into it and use it and whatever. But nonetheless, it's still not true of everybody all the time. Okay. And so we need a different approach that's going to bypass that issue. 
Okay, second limitation is they don't have a heart to comprehend the greatness of God. Now, um, we generally don't think of our hearts as doing a lot of comprehending, right? So what do you think that means? What does it mean that heart comprehends or doesn't comprehend? Emotion. Can create emotions? Well, I mean, that's what goes on to say that if the heart comprehends, then they can be creating of emotions. But I'm asking, what do you mean the heart needs to comprehend? I mean, you know, it's not like, it's not like I smell with my fingers, right? The There's... knowledge that you have connects to your emotions. But why, is, why, are you, why are we describing the heart as doing the comprehending? Like, I would think in that way, my head is doing the comprehending, and then my heart is reacting, is feeling something, in reaction to the comprehension. Right? Why am I describing the heart as doing the thing that's comprehending? Maybe because you have to have desire. Because you have to have desire. That we're going to take as a given, because if you don't have desire, then it doesn't matter what anybody tells you, right? There's a, there's a kind of unspoken rule in Tanya's that everything in Tanya is presupposing you want this to work. Because if you don't want it to work, no amount of advice will actually accomplish anything. So yes, everything requires desire, but it's actually not even mentioned in Tanya you have to desire. You know, the basic notion of a book of guidance is that you want to use it. What's easier to understand? A complicated problem or a simple inconvenience? That's easier to understand than a simple inconvenience? Yeah, okay, so. If I have some sort of very complicated legal dispute that's going on in my life, and I were to explain it to you, you would find that easier to understand than if I told you that I was late because the bus didn't show up. I think like emotionally it's easier to comprehend because you can say this is like complicated, legal, et cetera, and you need to think about it, okay, fine, like that's the nature of the issue, but I think like this minor inconvenience I feel like there's not as much substance for your emotions to sort of latch onto and like use to help brush that away. Okay. So what you're saying is that you need more things to hold on to and there's the more things you hold on to. Whereas if something is a minor inconvenience, I hear what you're saying. I would have argued that something that is more complicated is harder to comprehend. Because if something has a lot of different parts and it's easy to like lose like what's what exactly is going on? like what's the what's the point there's too much information there's you you're losing the forest to the trees you know if i missed the bus or the bus didn't show up i was very clear like i'm late because this thing that i was expecting to happen didn't happen right but if you have like too many different parts it's like not clear like where's the underlying problem what's the underlying issue that's how i would have put it that makes sense What's a bigger problem? 
a legal issue or missing the bus? What? Which one? I think it's a legal issue. It depends who's legal issue and who's missing the bus. If I miss the bus and it's your legal issue, well then to me, missing the bus is a bigger problem. There's comprehending in the sense that you can take all different parts of it and figure out like what's going on. Like what, what is this really thing going on? And then there's comprehending in the sense of getting a sense of the significance of that. Okay? In other words, sometimes you go to a person and like you have this complicated problem in your life and you go to them and you speak to them and they say, well, okay, it just basically sounds like this boils down to you know, you should probably just, you know, tell your mother that you really don't want to go on vacation with her and, like, that's basically what the issue is. And, like, so they've sorted through all of that complication and they comprehended pretty clearly what the issue is, right? And you're like, you don't get it, though! Like, I can't tell my mother that! It's like, well, why not? Because I can't! So there's something they're not comprehending, Right? So in one sense, they like comprehended, like you may not have even known that was like the problem, right? So they comprehended it in one sense and they didn't get it in the other sense, right? So what are these two kind of sense of comprehension? One kind of sense of comprehension is that kind of more intelligence thing to like figure out what's that linchpin, what's that one thing that holds everything together, okay? But the other thing is to have a sense of like what that thing actually is, the, the real weight it has, Give you like a physical analogy for a second. Um, there's all sorts of physical materials that we um, that are are weird. So, um, for instance, um, certain materials are much denser than they appear. Certain kinds of metals. So you have this little thing, and it doesn't look so dense, and you go to pick it up, and all of a sudden it's like, whoa, it's much heavier than I thought. Or conversely, something might appear very heavy and is really actually very light. Right? Things, things like that. And so it's like you had an assessment of it, but you had no sense of its actual, in this place I mean this quite literally, no sense of its weight. And then when you come to interact with it, you completely misjudge, and you use too much or too little force, and it doesn't move, or it moves way too quickly. That make sense? Okay. So there's this sense of, of comprehending the weight that something has, the significance that something has. And that, that's kind of a, it, 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 that's something that's not so much of an intellectual thing, but is, an, but is something that we understand as the emotions are doing, okay? So for instance, some people, if you tell them that you missed the bus and you were late for work, they comprehend how how, how difficult that is, how serious that is in your life. Like they, they get it and you can see in their tone of voice, in their body language, like it resonated. They got it. And the other person, like they perfectly understand exactly what happens and like, but like, whatever. Okay, you missed the bus and it's like, you know, nobody died and like, you know. Okay. See, that, that, that it's, a, it's a different kind of a comprehension. So here's the thing. What happens if my mind is on and it's racing and I'm engaged, but my heart doesn't have that comprehending thing going on, then I'm going to have this very, very um, wonderful experience of contemplating. It's not gonna feel dry, it's not gonna feel boring, it's gonna feel very exciting. 
But at the end of the day, I'm going to walk out of that experience changed in my relationship with anything? No. Because as a person, I didn't comprehend the significance of what I was contemplating. It came alive, but not for me. I was engaged in it, but I didn't get it. And if you don't have, if that's not there, like what are you supposed to do about that exactly? That's also an interesting question, right? And so you have this thing where you could have a person, not because they're a bad person and not because they're not smart, but either or both, their degree of connection, of caring about the greatness of God, or the degree with which they have that sensitivity to really comprehend its significance just isn't there, and therefore the contemplating doesn't actually produce any kind of an emotional change in how they relate to a shadow. These thing problems can be corrected, but these are like these are not these are these are not easy things to correct. I feel like the first one might be easier than the second. Probably, probably, but they're not easy things to correct. They're really not easy things to correct. And you also have to understand is like is it because sometimes you, you you know for instance and maybe that I have the ability to comprehend but I'm distracted like so for instance this is a common problem if you're a parent um, you definitely have the heart to comprehend the problems in your child's life. Your child comes and like says like this, you know, this thing in school happened. Like you definitely, like you have that capacity, it's not there. But if you're pressed for time and you're distracted because of work, right? Or other things are going on, it's not that you're lacking that ability, but rather that ability is being suppressed, it's being blocked, it's being clogged out, right? So, so that sometimes a person might suffer not be able to contemplate, not because these things are in, in lacking, but because there's other stuff clogging up the system. And, and that actually is discussed later on in Tanya um, in chapter 29, that sometimes a person, these things, they're, they're things that don't, that block the system. But, you know, it's like if my kid comes and tells me that, that they're getting picked on in school, like, like I don't just understand, comprehend that intellectually, I comprehend like what that means in his life. It's unfortunately not the same if some random person were to tell me they're getting picked on in school. I don't know if I would like, because of the bond of parent to child that makes you more sense, you hear that. So it turns out that you need to kind of have a significant degree of intellectual and emotional engagement with the greatness of God for contemplation to really have any tangible benefits in how you feel about Hashem. And if you find yourself lacking in that for whatever reason, what are you supposed to do? Good? Problem is clear? I have a question, though. Maybe it's not yeah. significant to this discussion, but which do you personally think is more powerful in engagement? Well, you need both. So uh, I think some people might have a harder time with one or the other, but I think it's kind of immaterial to like weigh them against each other. It's like, and I'll give you an example of baking. Which is more important, the water or the flour in, in terms of baking bread? Is a kind of a silly question because the entire nature of bread baking has to do with the interactions of flour and water, right? So you really need to understand the role the flour plays. You need to understand the role water plays. And you can have different ratios of flour to water, you know, depending on what kind of bread you want to make. But you can't weigh them against each other, right? Because the bread is the product of the... Of, of the proper interactions between the two. And so it's simply the, the, the mind turning on and that kind of engaged, you're, you're, you're you know, alive, reflecting, contemplating something because your intelligence is turning on to that supercharged level because this matters to you on some level. 
coupled with the heart's ability to pick up the significance of what it's being exposed to, those together produce the effect. One on their own won't produce the effect. Okay. And this, if the person is serving this, that even they don't, they don't produce awe and love of God, even in the mind and understanding alone. So in the two chapters that we discussed that there's these two, basically two levels of emotion. So I'm going to briefly go over this very quickly. We spoke about emotion, which is very visceral, right? You, you feel it in your body. And then we spoke about emotions, which you don't necessarily feel in your body, but it changes how you feel about, how you relate to something, right? So remember we spoke about in business, um, the way you feel about your own business is not that you're jumping for joy at every you know, dollar you get in income, in revenue, and you don't like, you know, fall apart crying every, every you know, dollar that goes out as an expense, right? But you definitely feel you know, a positivity towards in, you know, revenue, and you definitely have a negative attitude towards expense as a, you know, a necessary evil, right? So you're, you ha- you're feeling something towards things without actually being a real visceral, emotional state. Whereas if your business like collapsed or like all of a sudden you won a million dollars, right? You would feel that emotion in like a very tangible, physical way in the body, right? And so we said that it may be that not every soul is capable of producing the you know, emotions when it comes to Hashem that are that intense that it physically changes the body, that your heart starts to palpitate because of the love and all you feel towards Hashem. You know, but at the very least, you can have a kind of this, this, this feeling of personal connection and conviction and, and, and commitment that you develop, right? And that we said, that's good enough, right? If you have that, that's sufficient. But what we're saying now is that even producing that requires having a certain degree of capacity to contemplate and, and be sensitive to what you're contemplating. And you could be, a person could be lacking even that. So... At the end, they end up with like, that's a beautiful idea. It's really admirable. It's really wonderful. It doesn't really move me. And if that's where you find yourself when it comes to the greatness of God, even knowing all the techniques of contemplation, and even after removing all the blockages and clogs and everything else, right? Or, you know, for whatever reason, the, 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 the difficulty of doing all of this is just not something you're willing to put all the effort into because it, 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 it's such a... It's such a commitment to really get yourself to that place. You would need another approach for it to really say that this is something that that genuine love, genuine fear of Hashem that's integrated with Torah and mitzvah observance is something that's accessible to everybody without any limitations. We need a totally different approach. So he says, we can. It's still very near to observe and practice all the commandments of the Torah. Okay. Now, in Hebrew, observe is lishmar, and um, to practice is lasot, lasos, which is a reference to positive and negative commandments. So I want to talk a little bit about negative commandments. Because I think positive commandments is kind of intuitive. We all know what it means to do positive commandments. Okay. What does it mean to observe or to guard, Shmir literally means to guard negative commandments? So. We have this interesting expression, like, I keep kosher or I keep Shabbos. Have you heard this expression, I keep kosher, I keep Shabbos? Okay. What does it mean to keep kosher? What? I eat kosher. Most people eat kosher. You mean you only eat kosher? Oh, yeah. Okay, that's that's important, right? (laughs) There's a lot of kosher food in the world. It's hard to find a person who's never eaten something kosher. (laughs) You know. 
no raw fruits and vegetables from outside of Israel. It's a pretty restrictive diet if you want to make sure that what you're eating is for sure not kosher. Um, See, you only eat kosher. So I have noticed something growing up in Israel amongst, um, you know, the religious, um, and this is true even, you know, maybe even especially where I live, which is a Haredi ultra-Orthodox area. Um, A lot of people don't really, especially kids, they don't grow up with a sense of keeping kosher. Yeah. Yeah. My kids, my kids have, don't really, I mean, a little bit for reasons I'll get into in a second, but they don't really have a sense of keeping kosher. Okay, do you think it's good or bad? I don't know, actually. I don't know, but it's an interesting fact. They have no sense of keeping kosher. You know why? Because there's no choice. There's no, like, like, I remember growing up, and, like, there's this thing you want, but it's not kosher. And so you have to check before you eat things. Now, my kids have that because I don't eat everything that's in the grocery store because I have, like, I'm a little bit, you know, crazy about the kosher standards in the house. But they relate to it much more as, like, our family's level of observance rather than, like, it's not kosher. Like, I, I remember being a little kid and, like, 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 there's things in the grocery store that are, like, you cannot eat. They're not food. They might look like food, but they are not food. And you must be careful that you did not somehow, God forbid, enter your mouth. It's like a very different... Um, you know what it's like? What is it like to actually be Shomer Shabbos? I would say most people that are religious... Um, when they grow up as little children, don't really have a sense of what it's like to be Shomer Shabbos. Most people have started to have a sense of being Shomer Shabbos as they start hitting um, more into teenage years. You know why? Because all of a sudden, you start to feel like you would like to do things, which you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. And who's the one to make sure that you don't do those things? You. That's like a whole different thing, right? See what I'm saying? Like, Like, this notion that like, there is a line I would like to cross or there's a line I might be tempted to cross or there is a line that is easy to cross and I have to make sure that that line doesn't get crossed. Right? That is a very active thing you have to have as part of your life. Okay? You know, like, now, if a person becomes religious later in life, I think that becomes kind of, that's like something you encounter pretty quickly, right? Because you all of a sudden like, I used to do this, and I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm used to doing it, so I have to make sure I don't do it. And, like, and I have to deal with the emotions. Like, like there's a lot of schmear, there's a lot of guarding and personal vigilance involved in... You see what I'm saying? Like, like I, I, look at my, I look at my kids growing up, and so like, my three-year-old has a clear concept on Shabbos. On Shabbos, there's certain things we do, and there's certain things we don't do. But it's... It's just like, it's Shabbos, so we don't do these things. But there's no sense like, I could do it, and I have to now be vigilant to make sure I don't do it. Like, that doesn't exist for a three-year-old who grows up in a religious family. Um, but it's, you know, as they start becoming, and, you know. So, Shmiras HaMitzvahs. Right? In that sense that there's a shmir, is it, it, it's, it's an I want you to think of it as an active thing. Very often think of negative mitzvahs as simply you didn't do something. I didn't eat the non-kosher food. Right? I didn't drive on Shabbos. 
But that's not what it means. That's not what Shemira means. Shemira means I am making sure that I don't drive on Shabbos. I am making sure that I don't eat non-kosher food. Okay? So like, a funny thing happened. I was, uh, uh, um, a lot of places in Israel have what's called an Erev, which allows carrying. Erevs have different quality levels um, because of different halacha considerations. Um, where I live, the Erev is a very high standard. It's not the highest there is, but it's a, it's a high standard, and, and I use it. Um, but I generally don't use the Erevs in most places because I'm a bit of a religious zealot. Okay. So I grew up outside of uh, Israel, and I'm used to that on Shabbos. One of the things that you do before Shabbos is you check your pockets. And I'm also used to the idea that if, there's, you're, if you're not allowed to carry, you don't put anything in your pocket on Shabbos. That's like a pretty normal thing. But my kids are not. Um, and so I was walking with my son, and we're walking in a place where he, he didn't want to use the Eruv because it wasn't so, like, it was, uh, what's they saying? He wrote kacha kacha, so so. And we're walking, and all of a sudden he realizes that he has a sitter in his pocket. Um, and it just never occurred to him to check his pockets before he left because, like, it's, like, not even a thing. He grows up in a place, like, everyone carries. And, okay. So right now I'm just talking about, like, kind of things we habituate to or, or are being tempted to just to get a sense that, that shmira is an active thing. So even it's not, oh, it's not just, you're not, not, you're not just not doing something. You're, like, not doing something. You're really actively not doing it. But it actually goes more than that because... Here's the thing. Um, if you were going to make a business deal that involved a lot of money, um, would you just sign the contract without reading the, all the fine print? No, probably not, right? Um, the more complicated the issue was, the less likely you would be to rely on just your own casual reading of the small print. You might bring it to an expert, right? Might even just pay, might even actually pay an expert rather than just ask a favor, right? Why? How would you do all of that? To be extra careful. To be extra careful. So if I'm really, if I'm really engaged in something called shmirah samitzvahs, right? Then, like, oh, it's really possible to not keep mitzvahs. Like that's a real thing that happens, and. It's not just when I'm feeling sinful that it happens. It can happen even unintentionally. It can happen for a lack of caution. It can happen from just being too lackadaisical or just relying on my gut instinct about what's okay and not okay. And therefore, if I'm really engaged in Shmiro, then what am I doing? I am being cautious. I'm being vigilant. I'm consulting. I'm taking precautions, right? I'm making right. That's a whole different way of relating to Judaism. And just the same way that we understand doing mitzvahs is a whole... It's a whole project in life to engage the performance of mitzvahs. There's an equally important project of engaging in shmira, in guarding that you don't transgress mitzvahs. Okay? And the honest truth is that most people have much more, um, are much more comfortable growing in the asiyah, the doing of mitzvahs, than in the shmira of mitzvahs. Because that seems more positive. But... Is that, a, is that a holistic Judaism? If your Judaism is all about doing mitzvahs, it's not about being cautious about not violating the mitzvahs. Right? And by the way, I would say most people who are religious, if I were to be slightly, um, what's the word? Cynical. 
Yeah, cynical, judgmental. Say most people are religious, are not really engaged in Shemir Samitzvah. Most people, what they're doing is whatever level of habit, social norm they're used to, they're comfortable with, that's what they do. And when they're inspired, they like go more involved in the asiya, the doing of mitzvahs. It's much less common for a person to really have an active inner life of saying like, I need to be careful that I don't run afoul of the boundaries Hashem puts on my life and realize that that's not just a matter of not sinning when I'm really tempted, it's, 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 which is already a thing. There's layers and layers to this. Um, now that doesn't mean you're being paranoid. Caution and paranoia are, are not the same thing. What's the difference between caution and paranoia? Like on a real practical level? I'll give you an example. If you walk down the street here and you keep looking back every five minutes to make sure you're not being followed, you're probably paranoid. Why? There's no reason that. That's right, okay? If you're walking in an environment where there's a lot of crime, right? And you know, and you check every few minutes to make sure you're not being followed. That's okay. being cautious, right? In other words, there's some proportionality to things, right? If you see someone is engaged in shmira in this notion of shmira, there will be a variability based on circumstance, location, the issues involved, right? You know, sometimes you need to be extra vigilant and sometimes you don't need to be so vigilant, like some issues, right? But if a person's like hyper every little thing, then that's some kind of like, a, you know, paranoia, obsessive compulsive type of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. But when you're engaging something where it's more serious, and we see this reflect in halacha. I'll just give you one example of halacha where we see that there's different weight placed on these different things because of that. Um, when someone claims to be Jewish, do we believe them or do we not believe them in Jewish law? What? It depends for what? If they come into shul and there's no good reason to think that they're not Jewish, right? And they say, I'm Jewish. And, you know, you want to count them for a minion, fine. You know, if you want to, um, you know, marry somebody, that's a whole different thing, right? right? Because the the stakes are higher, the the cost of transgression is greater, and so more caution is warranted. Or you see this notion of variability, Okay. It depends on what's at stake, what's the situation. But I just want to, like, so the idea is that we actually have these, we have these emotional things, this love of Hashem, this fear of Hashem, right? That's one thing. And then we have actually this active engagement with Judaism, which is not just the doing and the growing and doing more, but a sensitivity to, like, this caution of guarding against transgression. Not just intentional transgression, but even unintentional transgression. And taking that seriously. First for yourself and then for your, 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 those around you, right? You don't want to create a family and a society. There are also that that's part of it, right? And he's saying is this can, you can have this in the fullest sense, right? The love of Hashem, the fear of Hashem, the guarding of the Judaism, the proactive doing of the mitzvahs in a full, rich sense with zero contemplation of the greatness of God. That's, that's the argument that's going to be There's a way to do this with zero contemplation of the greatness of God. Does that mean it's going to be easy? No. That's where we're going to go. Tomorrow we have questions and? Answers. You sound so enthusiastic. Okay. Maybe we should do something different. Maybe we could have like questions and questions. Like you ask questions and I'll like respond like a rabbi with more questions. Okay. Um, reminder for everybody who's been here before and new information people who are new. Questions and answers are on any topic you want as long as it's related to Judaism. Um, Controversial topics are encouraged. 
Um, if I don't know, I will tell you that I don't know. And I will not give you concrete halakhic rulings about um, nuanced halakhic issues. But I will explain to you some of the issues involved. Thank you. Thank you. And if you don't have questions, we will sit there in silence. We will sit in awkward silence. Very good. Are we meeting at 5.45? We are. Do you guys still have your copies? Can you